This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. He was a magician. He was the highest ranking magician in the kingdom because he had to bring fertility to the Nile. He had to wear everything, all the protective amulets, to be able to have a direct connection with the gods. And he had to have all this jewelry as a symbol, as a high priest, to be able to bring all these goodies for Egypt. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Today we're talking about ancient Egypt again. How can we not, in this 100th anniversary year of the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb, I don't know if you saw the images recently of the Dior show beneath the pyramids last week, but King Tutankhamun and this 5,000-year-long civilization continues to inspire designers in both fashion and jewellery. Masika have been inspired by the strength of Egyptian queens such as Nefertiti to match the spirit and mood in their latest collection, including golden chokers and winged scarabs surrounding a 35-carat stone. Lydia Corte in Paris has whole-rimmed jeweled eyes inspired by the original artefacts. There are micro-mosaic Hemelay Pharaoh earrings with faience birds and at Bulgari, diva-jeweled shapes inspired by Elizabeth Taylor's eyes as she played Cleopatra in the film released in 1963. As I've mentioned, many jewellers remain enthralled to the pharaohs, mixing the culture of this civilization with modernity. So I'll be talking with Spanish jeweller Antonio Sejo and Azafami, the Egyptian jeweller, about how the history, mythology and symbolism of this ancient past is included in their modern creations. Aza is collaborating with Balma on a one-of-a-kind bustier inspired by Egyptian symbolism to reflect the heritage of her predecessors. This gold-plated bustier is sculpted in the shape of the Eye of Horus and has lots of elements to represent the sun, rebirth and creation. So, Antonio, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks to you for inviting me. Such a pleasure. So I've been going through Antonio's book, which um, has many of the pieces that he has been inspired by ancient Egypt. Now, where did this passion about Egypt come to you and how did it first start influencing your design? I'm very passionate about jewellery and I'm very passionate about history. Then I decided one day to go through, uh, start with prehistory, to see, you know, what uh, uh, ancient man used to use as a necklace, you know, 65,000 years ago. And it was very interesting. But then 
I came to Egypt, you know, I started with Egypt and I, I thought it was an incredible and inspiring civilization. And I think uh, I have been there already for 30 years. I mean, if I managed to be 150 years old, I think I was still there because it's so fascinating. But it was curiosity about history and jewelry. And I think it's one of the most um, original civilizations in the sense that even though they had contact with the world for 5,000 years, they had 6,000 kilometers of fantastic river, the Nile, isolated by two immense deserts. And they have to be there in the middle of this beautiful river. And is, is there that everything is inspired and isolated. And they, were, they had some stones, but some others had to be imported. The most expensive one in ancient civilization was uh, lapis lazuli. I think it probably showed that they had quite sophisticated trading relations even then to get this lapis from Afghanistan. Yeah, for sure, because it was far away. I mean, it was uh, Badakashan, which was the city in Afghanistan that produced uh, all these, very far away. Antonio, first of all, can you tell me, when did you first visit King Tutankhamun? Carmen's tomb? I think it was about 20 years ago I mm -hmm. went and then uh, before the COVID and I went once with the Metropolitan Museum and uh, we had a fantastic visit because they, they have access to everything. And I have studied the Tutankhamun collection thoroughly for many years because for sure it was intact. I mean there, there were some little robberies and some little objects you know at the entrance of the tomb. But before even Howard Carter found it that was pre-Howard Carter finding it, wasn't it? Yeah. It's fantastic to have all this. But you have to imagine that it was a king that didn't reign for a long time. And imagine the, the treasure. Imagine, for instance, Ramses II, who was reigning for 90 years. And imagine the treasure he would have had if this tomb had not been robbed. What did you feel? What was your experience the first time you saw the tomb? I thought... I couldn't believe it, you know, it's, it's almost unreal. You think it's fake. I mean, because I saw the tomb and all the treasures are not there. They are in the, in the main museum in El Cairo. But uh, I couldn't believe these, these pieces, you know, and I know each one of them. It looks like new. It's something that has been done before yesterday, you know. But um, it's beautiful, the aesthetics and the combination of colors and the objects. You know, I do believe that objects, I mean, this is my theory in jewelry. There are, there are object, objects that have soul. You know, they have a soul sometimes. If you see into Tancamon's treasure, all the objects have a soul. They speak by themselves, they communicate with you. And I believe that in, in, in every piece of art, if there is this soul, this kind of uh, spirit that communicates with you, is there the success? Is there that the piece is really, really top, you see? And into Tancamon's tomb, there are all of them. There are all of them like this. Didn't you travel with um, a professor of hieroglyphics the first time? It was Professor Presedo from, from Sevilla University. He discovered quite a few archaeological uh, important pieces uh, of Spanish archaeology, and he became a very good friend of mine. And uh, he, he came from Galicia, which is the same place as my father came from. And he was a very humble man, but my God, he was bright. 
And I spent one month with him. You know, it was uh, like being with your lover. You know, I mean, I was looking at him and listening to him because he had this capacity of writing beautifully and expressing himself very clear. Then he told me stories of Napoleon, you know, when he went to Egypt. Do you think um, Napoleon ignited the first Egypt mania moment when people became fascinated? For sure. I mean, he was the guy... He was a, a fascinating man, too, because he was extremely cultured. He read a lot, all the classics, and he decided to get in, in Paris the best scientists, the best uh, painters, and he got all those guys together, and uh, he made this fantastic book that is called The Description of Egypt, which is you got every bird, every lizard, every uh, palm tree, every camel, everything described. And you know, for a warrior to have this capacity of looking at culture at the same time was quite unusual. Yes, he was the guy who ignited the whole thing. Now, Antonio, did you learn hieroglyphics from your professor? Well, he taught me a few. I, I took um, some courses myself. I follow some things in the internet. There are some symbols that are, you know, familiar to me. And I can guess something, but I'm, I'm not knowledgeable. I wish I, I could, because it takes uh, quite a while, I mean, to be, because they are all symbols and uh, that produce sounds. And, uh, and they are very, um, for a designer, is extremely attractive. Uh, because uh, they are beautiful and there is a lot of meaning, you know, involved in every little duck or tree. I suppose the shapes as well, the shapes that they form in the hieroglyphics are, are ideal for jewellery designers. For jewellery designers, it's a dream, everything, you know. Mm -hmm. And there are two or three very interesting books, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, there is a professor called Wilson who wrote a fantastic book on the symbols of uh, ancient Egypt, where he uses all the time these fantastic cartouches, because you always have the cartouche and you have the little symbols inside. And the cartouche was really the symbolism of the pharaoh. Yes, it was. But uh, they use it all the time, you know, to, to express it could be... A little gold, almost like medallions, yes, almost like yes, a, yeah. a medallion that um, a soldier would wear with a sort of date, name... Yeah. date of birth, yeah. and um, it's, it's exactly what the Egyptians would have in that gold medallion. Well, you, you have to think that those guys, they use amulets 24 hours a day uh, for, for the life here and for the life afterwards, after, after death. There are hundreds of different uh, amulets for protection, for different subjects. And this is one of the things I have learned from ancient civilization. And is one of the interesting subjects that gave me the idea to make my book, is how to use a story and make a jewel out of one story. And this is what I'm doing with my, uh, you know, it's what I want to develop in, in my writing. Unfortunately, for jewelers, we have a very little space because a jewel is, is a small. It's not like a painter who can paint with enormous uh, canvas. You you can make a story, a very long story. But this is the challenge, is to make a jewel out of one story or to make a story or have a story and then create a jewel. So one of the stories that you tell um, about ancient Egypt in your jewelry is about the Nile, isn't mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. 
Because the Nile was so important to them, wasn't it? It meant life, it meant water. Yeah, it meant everything, thing. everything. So can you tell us what the story was and how you interpreted it? Well, one of the first stories I tell is the name of Egypt. The Egyptians, they call Egypt Kemet. And Kemet meant all the silt that came from the sources of the Nile that is almost black. And Kemet means the black. And at the same time, it, it, it produced the fertility of the Nile. And which is so fascinating is, is that Kemet is the origin of the word alchemy and chemist, chemistry, you know, which is so fascinating. It means the name of Egypt has produced the word chemistry and alchemy. And then what I did is I made a jewel out of it that I have called in the book Kemet. And is the Nile is a Savorite with 41 carats with um, uh, Paraiva tourmaline and Savorite, the little diamonds around. And it looks like this silt coming from the north of Egypt, you know. And I think the word is so deep that, you know, it's, it involves the idea of Egypt the fertility of Egypt and everything that comes afterwards. Because after this fantastic uh, river, you have uh, uh, everything, all the civilization that comes out of it. Eh? Um, and they need it to grow products, to grow food. And you also have been very inspired by the, um, the lotus flowers around the Nile, haven't sure, you? Sure, for sure. First, the gardens, because I have made a ring called the Garden of Egypt. I have put a rectangular opal in the center. And when you look at the opal and you make it move, it looks like um, lotus flowers, you know, because of the iridescent of the, of the stone. And then I have made a blue lotus flower, because in Egypt they have three. They have the white, the blue, and the pink. And I have made one blue that is extremely beautiful, and then a pink. Pink came later. These are the lotus flower that uh, coincide with the lotus flowers in the Far East, the Chinese, you know, mm -hmm. for, for mm -hmm. the Buddha and all these. But those guys, the lotus flower, they believe that give them strength. It was like medicine. They made infusions with this. They made a tea out of it. And they thought they brought them... A strong sexuality and uh, um, it was against uh, any type of illnesses. I mean, they really believe in lotus flower in every in every sense. So it was very energizing for them, a bit like uh, Jin said. Yes, exactly. Something like that, and that that really goes into their sort of cult of beauty and well-being that was so important to them, wasn't it? I think, in fact, in King Tutankhamun's tomb, there was a a lot of alabaster bowls to for f food to, and to make pastes to help him in the afterlife there was pomegranate onion nuts and also this kind of pharmacy of juniper berries for pain and coriander seeds to treat fevers um so he, he probably had some lotus flowers in there as well do you think oh there is there, there is this mm. white uh, alabaster object that uh, looks like a lotus flower and there is a beautiful in the tutankhamun tomb there is a, a lotus flower made out of wood painted carved mm -hmm. with the head of tutankhamun on the top and is very very famous and well-known object in the in the collection of of the of Tut, uh, Tutankhamun's uh, tomb, and is a lotus flower, which means that for them it was so linked to the pharaoh, 
and to the gods, you know, to, is, 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 is a holy flower. I mean, really. Because it opened, opened at dawn and closed at yes, night. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and it smells beautiful. They really believed in the protective qualities of stones as well. He had a menat, didn't he, on, on him of different stones that would have protected him going into the afterlife. Yeah, but there, there is both things. There is a stone and the carving of the stone that made the symbol. And uh, e- even there are some interesting in the the Tutankhamun tomb, there is a necklace. That's a fascinating necklace with a stone made out of crystal. And it, it seems that the crystal, and the scientists, they don't know where it comes from. It comes from the desert, the Libyan desert, west of Egypt, and is almost yellowish. And I have one, one of those pieces, because I would love to cut it one day and do something with it. And it, it seems that it comes from heaven. They, they don't know the origin, but it's a piece of crystal, yellowish, beautiful. And one of the stones in this necklace is a scarabee just in the middle, yellowish. And it, it's this crystal, it's called Libyan crystal or something like this. And this is, is not stone. Is, is something they don't know where it comes from. And it's, it's totally magic. So that stone is part of the extraordinary magic and mystery then? It is. It's like sometimes, you know, in the desert, there were some meteorites that fall. And you have to think mm. that at that time, they didn't know what iron was. But they found these pieces. For instance, there is in the Tutankhamun treasure a sword that was made out of iron. And that was weird. But this is, is a meteorite iron. All these little details of the different materials is what makes Egypt so fascinating and to make a link between the jewelry that you can make as a designer and try to use these materials to play with the symbolism of the past, you know, what they, they really thought of. For instance, silver was twice as expensive as gold because they didn't have silver. They had a natural occurring metal mixed of silver and gold called electrum. And when you see this material, there are some amulets made out of it. Then you see it is a beautiful material because it's neither gold nor silver. It's something like a mixed and it's so soft. You know, imagine gold and silver together, but with any defining color, but simply a mix of both. Silver was horrendously expensive for the Egyptians. So that would have been reserved for royalty and the wealthy. And the crystals for people would have been on twine and cord. What would they have strung their necklaces together with? I think they probably used linen. Linen. Linen existed and they used it a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, they have all these plants in the Nile that they could use, you know, link them and, and making threads and making all these. But uh, The papyrus plant. For sure, probably. the papyrus, yes. for sure. Turquoise was a very expensive as well and quite rare, wasn't it? Even though the blue colour was everything to the Egyptians, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, but it didn't come from so far away. They, they had two mines in the Sinai Peninsula and the pharaoh, we don't know if physically he went to the mines to extract it as a symbol, but uh, symbolically he always went to the mine, took a piece of turquoise and used it, you know, when he came to power. That was one of the first steps. As a symbol, to link it with the waters of the Nile, to the sky, to, to everything that was uh, blue. But that, they, they had locally mines. Then that, that was easier. 
but for sure it was always for for the very high ranking people i mean no, nobody uh, you know a, a peasant would never own a, a piece of of turquoise that would be very very unusual so that color blue was incredibly important the color red carnelian for lifeblood meaning everything i think to to get that color blue because they couldn't have enough of it is that why they developed faience and this type of glass that they developed for sure the faience was a cheap way to have it and then that was for 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 the layman for for the normal people to to have access and the goddess hathor was the one who protected the miners as they dug out this turquoise well uh, the goddess hathor was the goddess of the turquoise She was the goddess mm -hmm. of the turquoise. When I made I made some earrings with her wig that is represented in one of the stilas in the Louvre and I put a little piece of turquoise in the back because I love to make some jewels and sometimes use their symbolism or their protection in the back of the jewel. And the goddess in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, there, there is one of the mines, I think it's called Magara, and uh, at the entrance of the mine, there is a little statue of Hathor because she was the goddess, she was the goddess of many things. She was the goddess of love, music, beauty, sexuality. I mean, the goddess of turquoise. She was a busy goddess. <laughs> very busy, very busy. But, you know, every time when the pharaoh came to power, she was there because she was the, the one who accompanied the, the pharaoh wherever he went. And there are lots of stories in mythology, you know, with the pharaoh walking with Hathor. And Hathor appears everywhere. He's a fascinating goddess. I, I talk to her very, very many times every day. Now I'm going to ask Egyptian jeweler, as a Fami, what are the gods, the symbols, the colorways that particularly resonate with you and are important to you to mimic or recreate in your jewels? I consider the jet to be one of the most meaningful symbols that I have always admired. It represents stability through forming the modern shape of the backbone found in the human form. The chin, which represent protection and eternity, had the sun disk in the middle representing the joy of great life. Finally, the Ujrat eye, the eye of Horus, is the great and the famous symbol of the pharaonic art, which ancient Egyptian artists used in many different forms. I only speak of a few motifs which I love most, But speaking of all pharaonic symbols would take me hours. How easy is it to, to recreate these ancient symbols in modern pieces that young women and men are going to wear now? Pharaohs were very advanced and modern in their art. Looking at the facades of temples and using Sa'ara as an example from the Old Kingdom, you can see the great simplicity and the harmony of the lines. It is beyond contemporary art. The painted walls inside the tomb and their fashion and jewelry and every aspect of the pharaonic era was very sophisticated. An interesting fact, ancient Egyptians set up a school for artists and artisans, teaching them the correct proportion and always documented life. You can find on many of the famous tombs the sketches of the student and next to it correction marks by his mentor. Antonio, can you tell us a little bit about the culture of hair and wigs in ancient Egypt? Because you've created um, a jewel that looks like one of the wigs that um, 
a pharaoh might wear. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, you have to think that for hygienic purposes, people cut their hair completely. They were bald. Then what they did is for different um, special moments of uh, events, of unusual events, they always use a wig. And when the couples uh, wanted to get together, when you love a girl or something, or a girl loves you, and you, you went for, for an evening together, you, you put a wig all the time. There is a story of uh, two brothers, one of the wives of one of those brothers, who wanted to have a relationship with the other brother. And uh, it's a quite a dramatic uh, situation. And at the same time, when they went, they, when they met uh, separately for a certain relationship, they, they put wigs. So you made the shape of the wig look like two falcons that are almost looking at each other. Yeah, but I, I didn't know in the beginning it happened. Uh, I made the two wigs because the, to make a shape, to use it in, in some earrings, you need to put, you know, the wig in a certain position. And uh, when I finished the earrings, I realized there were two falcons uh, looking uh, to each other. And, and that really uh, surprised me. And I, I love it. I love it that I didn't even think and it happens, you know. And sort of twinkling diamonds coming from the bottom of it, that move and twinkle, almost like the, the art of seduction that these wigs were used for. Yeah, because, well, the Egyptians, they didn't have any diamonds or any other type of color stones that we use. But I have, for me, the idea was making a kind of 1920s kind of piece. It was Egyptian, but at the same time, there was like a, this period of, of folly and craziness of the 1920s where diamonds were all over with uh, baguettes and pear shape, which is is at that time that they started to use it because uh, you, you never find baguettes or special shapes before 1900. Yeah, and the effect, even the, the wig, you know, we made some striae of the wigs and they look like tresses and we did it all in silver oxidized and, uh, and it's beautiful and it's very striking and very beautiful and very elegant I think. And what was it that you thought about the way men and women were wearing jewellery in ancient Egypt and do you think there was a difference in what they were wearing? I don't think so. You know in, in Tutankhamun's tomb you see the pharaoh you know his face and his lobes completely with a big hold and wearing jewellery, uh, which is, it means probably they wore it just like women. You know, in ancient Egypt, woman has an, an enormous power, not like in Greece or in Rome, where women were really, they didn't have the power and um, there was never a woman emperor. But there was a woman pharaoh. There was Hatshepsut, who was uh, the most powerful pharaoh in the history of Egypt. It was a woman. They were so ahead of their time, weren't they, when you think that there's been no female president in the US, to imagine there were these all-powerful female pharaohs. And sometimes when the children were very little, they were regent. Many, many women had the power to handle the politics in, in Egypt. But never in Rome, not one, not one single time. And, and in, in Greece, not one single time. But the minute that female um, royalty wore was, in a way, that, that wasn't about them, was it? It wasn't a, a decorative item for them. It was all about protecting the king. The pharaoh had to have not only the jewellery, but the symbol 
that um, represented because it was essential to he was a magician he was the highest ranking magician in the kingdom because he had to bring fertility to the Nile you know the waters had because sometimes some years the waters didn't come to the right situation and it was awful for the Egyptians because if there was no water in the Nile there was nothing but it was the responsibility of the first magician in the kingdom that was the pharaoh. He had to wear everything, all the protective amulets, to be able to have a direct connection with the gods. He was the intermediary between men and, and the gods. And he had to have all this jewelry as a symbol, as a high priest, to be able to bring all these goodies for Egypt. He was an incredible magic priest. And this is the clue to the whole story, why he wore so many jewelry and things. The jewelry was the element that brought the strength and the magic to be able to get order in the country. That was. And then his wife or the female members of his family would wear the jewelry to reinforce that. For sure. Everything was with the aim. I mean, theoretically, it was all goodwill. He, he was born with a very, very important responsibility, is that the Nile was at the right level of growth, the water, to be able to produce the fertility and the well-being of the country. And all the jewelry, all the monuments was for connecting the gods with him as an intermediary to bring order in, in Egypt. That, that was the whole aim of the pharaoh at the end of the day. And then the ordinary people were wearing their jewellery just for their own soul protection with an eye to helping them through to the afterlife when they died. For sure, because they, for them, afterlife, I think they believed so much in afterlife because they believed very much in, in, in the present life they were living. And you have to think that those guys, they lived only 30 years, which means that they have to get everything out of their life. You know, and uh, it was like a little bit like today when we think about meditation to live in the present. You know, there are so many people you live in the present and the Buddhas and all these. But their presence, uh, they wanted the presence more than anybody else because they didn't have a long time to live. You know, mm -hmm. when you were 18, you were, uh, God, you were old. You know, today you are 75 and you are ready to go and, uh, you know, have fun and probably you live 100 years, which is... It's becoming very common. For them, it was not. And then they, all their philosophy, all their jewelry, all their amulets, all their universe was directed to living just at the present, full and with beauty, you know? And, uh, and this is the fascination about because people think, you know, after life, they only, only thought of death. No, they thought of life because it was, it was short and, and you had to live it deeply and thoroughly, you know? And well, because that's why they had the the weighing of the heart ceremony on death was to make sure that they lived well and it kept order for the pharaoh that people wanted the weighing of the heart to go in their favour so they didn't go to hell. Yeah, but Carol, this is a this is a new goddess coming in, okay? And this, okay. I, I mean, a bit, that was the goddess Maat, the goddess of order, you know, justice and order. And it was represented with the symbol of the feather of an ostrich, okay? And you see the goddess, you see always the feather of an ostrich on the top of, of the head. And I have made uh, one necklace with the pharaoh and 
all the symbol of the goddess Maat. Okay, Amat, when you died, she was there with the scribes and taking notes and everything. The, and she put the balance. And in one side of the balance, you had the feather, the ostrich feather. And in the other side, it was your heart. To be able to go to heaven, you had to have your heart lighter than the ostrich feather. Uh, you know, theoretically, it's very difficult. But, um, you know, because sometimes when I think of this, you know, everybody went to hell anyway. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it was a symbol of the subtlety of this balance and the goddess uh, Maat, which is, is very sophisticated, no? Very sophisticated. For me, the, the, the main, I mean, there were three goddesses that were Isis, that was, uh, it's very interesting because for the word in hieroglyph for gold, you represented a little necklace, okay, the goddess Isis on the top, and you pronounce the hieroglyph Nub, to say gold, and Nub is Nubia, which means they went for gold to search for gold in Nubia. And the, and the word for gold in ancient Egypt is nub. And it was represented with the goddess Isis and a necklace, a beautiful necklace. Do you think sometimes when I see images now, particularly in the 100th anniversary of the finding of the tomb by Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon, that the, the mummy figure of Tutankhamun, he seems naked and dispossessed of all his possessions and... Is there a sort of glimmer of sadness seeing him without this treasure that was his and he is meant to go into eternity with? For sure, for sure. Yeah. Even, you know, all those impressive characters in the history of Egypt, they should be in one place with all their objects, you know, because at the end of the day is what they use every day. And uh, it's linked to them, you know, like you. you, yeah. you I'm sure you collect uh, pieces. And uh, all your objects, your glass, the glasses you are wearing, the pieces of uh, souvenir you got all, all over your life, this is completely linked to you. And uh, Tutankhamun, the same. I'm sure that all the pieces that we see in the... In the um, if pieces could talk, you know, it would be so fascinating. If jewels could talk. Yes, if, if only jewels could that talk. mask yes. could talk. Yeah, for sure. But do you think that was the most beautiful piece that came out of the tomb was the mask? Do you for think sure, that? For sure, mm. it's, it's, uh, for sure. It's outstanding because it's, mm. it's such a beauty, so in, imposing and at the same time um, there is a kind of uh, childish expression but at the same time is is very imposing because it's, it's so striking my goodness it's just like a piece that have been made uh, three weeks ago. Azza can I ask you about the first time you visited King Tutankhamun's tomb and what you feel about the mask? to enter the tomb of this great young pharaoh who died so early in his life but left behind a legacy of art and culture that still stands today was emotional for me. His whole life is present in front of my eyes. The artifacts within the tomb are unbelievable, whether it be his mask, clothes, jewelry, furniture, carriages, are all there in perfect condition. And it gives me an open encyclopedia into pharaonic art. Of all those treasures that you saw, was there one particular piece of jewellery that really inspired you? Strangely enough, the back of his famous mask was always been an inspiration to me. 
The contrast between two colors, the royal blue and gold, and harmony of two lines connected is incredible. And I know part of that inspiration for you is preserving ancient techniques and the way that jewels were crafted. Can you tell me how you do that in your jewelry today? And as a Fahmi, we like to take from the past to make the future. We aim to always develop and keep ancient techniques in our jewelry. Using hand-carved stones to present the beauty and the meaning of pharaonic symbols and amulets. So Antonio, you made your own mask, didn't you? A pharaoh who looks a little like Tutankhamun. And he's got his Neem's headdress beautifully crafted in platinum diamond stripes. So it has this sort of ancient and modern look all at the same time. It's a kind of uh, dark chalcedony. It's from the 1850s, 1860s, because I found it in one um, collection of, of a gentleman that I bought many pieces from him. And when I saw these uh, carvings and when I saw these face, it, that is so beautiful because it's, it's really beautiful. And it's a black pharaoh, which is interesting, okay? Because the, the stone is black. I, I made uh, the whole story out of it uh, because uh, it inspired me immensely. I mean, the, these, these face. And then I made uh, all the symbols. There is a, a scepter. Uh, in the necklace that represents the pharaoh. I use the symbol of the goddess Maat too, all around, because order is so essential in Egypt. And I put something in the back of the pharaoh, which was the, the Nile, the lotus flower, and the pyramid. These three symbols are so Egyptian. And uh, I made... Um, something like a protective necklace, you know, for the well-being of, uh, of my family and the people I love, you know, and for sure Egypt as a symbol. And uh, there is a story uh, in, in, uh, in the chapter dedicated to this uh, head of the pharaoh where I talk about, you know, a small man with an uh, uh, old face, uh, which were the, the people that brought luck you, you have to touch them because they brought luck in ancient Egypt. And at the same time, they were the manufacturers and the transformers of metals. They were the only people allowed it to melt the metals and make jewelry. And I tell a story how I discover, you know, I mean, in, in, the, in first person, how I discovered these, these men that were so essential for the uh, creation of jewelry in ancient Egypt, which is, is uh, in all ancient uh, civilization, you had this small little man with a face, all face, but a body of a boy who could transform uh, the metals and the jewelry and make jewelry, you know, which is so... Uh, but it's not only in ancient Egypt, in, in many other civilizations, always. I think you go to the Louvre Museum a lot to see the pieces Augustus Mariette, an archaeologist, bought pieces back in the 1850s that are in the Louvre. Do you study those? Do you get inspired by those? I think I know them all by heart. <laughs> 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 Every single piece. And it's funny because it's like a dialogue, you know, every time I go to the Louvre, I, I really go. And it's funny because I have, um, I have a picture with myself in front of the Sphinx, which is the first object when you enter the uh, ancient Egyptian department. When I was 15, and I have another, and my daughter made two, two different um, pictures 
with me when I went there when I was 15 and today. And it's so sweet because it's, uh, when you see uh, of the dates and you say, God, that was about 45 or 50 years ago, that's, that's enormous, you see. <laughs> but I love to go there. I walk and I feel it. I feel the, the gods and, the, and, and, you know, it doesn't mean that I know a lot, but uh, I have grasped the essence of this civilization in a certain way, in a poetical way. I wouldn't say that I'm the most knowledgeable one or that I have read hieroglyphs, but I have a, a goddamn feeling about, about this civilization. And this is where things become interesting. Not only the knowledge, but the intuition of things. You know, is, uh, for instance, this is what I want to convey with my jeweler. May I, uh, you know... Did I get the the feeling, the essence of things? You know, when you mm -hmm. make a piece of jewelry, and then you put your poetical mind and your uh, imaginative thing inside, and then it becomes a jewel that talks to you, talk to people. I mean, uh, I have done an exhibition in the in the Marmottan Museum last week in Paris, and there were 130 people, all my clients from all over the world came to the exhibition and I talked about the soul of objects and I told exactly what I felt and you cannot imagine the emotions. I talk about impressionism because it's Monet was all the Monets around and I said, God, what a feeling and people get it, get the message and that's what I, uh, I enjoy if I manage to get the message. Do you think all jewellery designers should study ancient Egypt? Do you think it's the most unsurpassed creativity? Do you think that moment, the ancient Egyptians, civilization and jewellery has never been surpassed? Uh, it's such an iconic civilization and it talks to all of us. I mean, there is not one film, not one exhibition. I mean, if you make an exhibition of Tutankhamun or whatever that has something to do with Egypt, people get mad. Why? Because we need emotions. We need to feel the history. And... Um, and I think all designers should feel what they do. I'm not, I'm not saying ancient civilization like Egypt, for sure, you know, because it's, it's primordial, is is essential, is is everywhere there is something to do, uh, something to do, the patterns, you know, of ancient objects from, from Egypt are everywhere. But I think what designers should do is to feel it. I mean, like... You feel what you are doing. It's not, don't think commercially, you know, how to sell something. How do you feel it? Because then the other person is going to feel it and he's going to buy. You know, I, I don't mean that we don't have to make money or, or what, what, we, we don't have to think commercially speaking. But you, you, uh, it's feeling, it's feeling. And some objects do not tell you anything. And it's fantastic because uh, there are some companies that make marketing they sell it because they are very sophisticated with their marketing. But at the end of the day, there is nothing. It doesn't last forever. It doesn't last because there is no feeling involved. There is not communication, you know, with the piece. And do you think the jewellery shows, this jewellery that spanned all these, you know, their 5,000 civilizations, thousands of years since, do you think it kind of links us and shows us that we're pretty much the same as the ancient Egyptians? For sure, because at the end of the day, we are still humans, okay? We, are, we have uh, artificial intelligence coming, 
machine. That, but probably we will have to get married with these uh, artificial intelligence because, <laughs> it's, because otherwise you are lost. But at the end of the day, what we look is for humanity in the beginning, like in, in ancient Egypt and today. And we need this humanity. We need to see what are the what The wig, uh, a person wearing a wig is what? Is to... To be beautiful for the other person, to share something with the other person. Then if you put a jewel, the jewel is to enjoy and to, and to un enhance the beauty of the other. This is what ancient civilization started to do. And this is, we are, is the pattern we are repeating again. Uh, but it's essential, you know, in, while we are uh, uh, humans. I tell you, when artificial intelligence starts to, to mix... Then we are talking something else. And, and I don't know what is going to be something else. <laughs> We're always going to stick with our jewellery. Um, so when will you go back to Egypt? When will you next go back? Antonio? As soon as I can. As a, in your view, have the treasures of this civilization ever been surpassed? I don't think so. As a, how would you sum up the style of modern Egyptian jewellery worn by young women and men today? The art of ancient Egyptian was so well-researched and advance that it's difficult to add or follow up. Having done this homework, my job is to try to take their crafts and legacy and bring it up to the date with today's trends. My wish is that when designers approach this era, they have a full understanding of the heritage and the culture that was left. I just want to thank Azza and Antonio so much for joining me today and shining a light on this glorious golden civilization that continues to fascinate us. Thank you so much, both of you. Thanks to you, Carol. Thank you for listening. If Jules Could Talk is hosted and recorded by me, Carol Walton, with special thanks to producer Natasha Cowan and editor Tim Thornton. For more information about this and other podcasts, please visit our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to hear more about our sponsors, it's foolygemstones.com. Nothing is more important to us here at If Jules Could Talk than subscribers, ratings and reviews. You'll find us on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts and please spread the love wherever you listen. Join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. We're going to talk to the Duchess of Rutland in the Manor's family seat of Beaver Castle. From the outside, it looks as if it's all about tiaras and breakfast in bed, but we're going to find out if that's all true and what it's like living in a stately home. So please join me again in two weeks. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Wilton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Wilton. <laughs>